Gun Shop High Cap Adventures. We got a great show for you this morning. This is Richard Dodd sitting in for Matt Boutros, who's off doing something very important today. Our show highlights. It's going to be exciting. We have some true stories of self-defense. We have an observation piece. We're going to have attorney Benton Ross Watson here to talk about the Fifth Amendment, the most important amendment of all. So, true stories of self-defense brought to you by the NRA. In this section... I'll read you three stories from the NRA's Armed Citizen pages of the American Rifleman. It seems that at Prospect, Connecticut, at a car dealership, the owner and an employee were tending to business when two masked invaders burst in through the back door. They were armed with handguns, and they began assaulting the owner and employee. Luckily, an armed patron, somebody just in shopping for cars, happened to be in the building, and he opened fire on the two attackers. Both men fled through the back door. Police and EMS found one attacker nearby, and he was subsequently declared deceased at the scene. He was a dead man. What do you think, Ross? Well, I'm just glad that uh, no no workers that were getting assaulted got shot. I think it was a good shot if he's able to to shoot those guys and right while there was a. a a fracas. He, I would say he was half good shot. The other guy got away, remember? <laughs> <laughs> you talk about lucky. The other guy's lucky in that he didn't get shot, number one. <laughs> but also, guess what? There's no witnesses to <laughs> So, yeah, I mean, it was a good uh, who's at the business. Nobody knows his name. <laughs> but we all know the other guy's names. It is permanently inscribed on a stone somewhere in Connecticut. <laughs> So we got a thief then, a different story, a true story. A thief got more than he bargained for after stealing a sports utility vehicle in Missoula, Montana. Missoula, Montana, that's a, that's a neat place. Just after 8 a.m., local deputies were called in to investigate the theft, and in their search for the offender, they spotted the SUV and attempted to pull it over. They apprehended the illicit driver. However, the driver, being pretty smart, fled through several neighborhoods and a construction site before crashing into a mailbox. Pretty smart, huh? <laughs> anyway, witnessed, witnessing the pursuit and crash outside of his window, a nearby resident armed himself in case he was drawn into the confrontation. And guess what? Sure enough. He was drawn into the he confrontation. He was drawn into it. Anyway, the carjacker chose to force his way into that very house where he was met by the vigilant homeowner and held there until the police arrived to arrest him on multiple charges. Another lucky guy, considering how smart he is, wouldn't you say? <laughs> yeah, yeah, he just picked the right house. <laughs> the wrong house. Well, I mean, you know, he's not uh, he's not named on that tombstone, at least. So. <laughs> so in a way, considering all things, he's pretty lucky. So then in another true story, a Texas couple out doing errands had to fight their way out of the danger after being targeted by criminals looking for someone to rob. The husband and wife duo were followed on their way from the bank to the grocery store, and then, upon loading groceries into the car, a black SUV pulled into an adjacent parking lot. Abrupt, abruptly, one of the occupants of that SUV jumped out, pulled a gun, and demanded the woman's purse. 
Fearing for his wife's safety, her husband drew his own firearm and used it to fend off the suspect. The two robbers, both injured, drove off but proceeded to crash their vehicle before attempting to flee on foot. Police arrested one suspect after he turned up at a nearby fire station seeking help for a shoulder wound. That so, was in Katy, Texas. So that's what uh, stands out to me is the fact that this was in Katy. I was actually going to comment before I even saw where this was. I was going to say this happens all the time in Houston. Uh, you got to be very careful, especially if you're an elderly couple. You get People get targeted. doesn't happen near as much in a smaller community such as Cameron, other places that are, that are smaller communities. But this does happen in places that are even mid-sized. We're talking about College Station, Bryan, Temple, a- anywhere in the big community. So even though you don't live there, if you're going and you got your purse and you, you're making yourself vulnerable. So uh, all the stuff for self-defense definitely goes into play with what Matt is trying to teach you. As well as from a legal standpoint, if you've got elderly parents, right, make sure that they're aware that when they go out to these uh, larger cities, that people do actually target them. People actually do follow them. They will follow them. This is not some uncommon occurrence. I'm just glad that this happened in, in their favor. They had they were trained from somebody like Matt, probably. Especially uh, when you're coming home from the bank. <laughs> exactly. So yeah. I mean, they're going to sit out in front of the bank and watch people come in and come out and follow them. So yeah, be careful. You don't have to be paranoid, but be prepared. Exactly. That's what. That's what. That's exactly what Matt would say. All right. So we're going to be here. Hang on. We'll be right back. All right, respectforyou.com is my website, Richard Dodd. And we got attorney Benton Ross Watson, a Yoha Star Academia and football player and college football scholarship recipient and attorney here in Cameron, Benton Ross Watson. How you doing this morning? I'm good, man. I'm happy to be here. Ready to go. Got the Fifth Amendment on, on deck. The Fifth Amendment, that's like the most important amendment of all of the amendments, isn't it? It's one of them. I, you know, my favorites are the First and the Fourth. But well, you, you okay. took over the Fourth last week, did a great job. I'm sick because I couldn't make it. But, uh, yeah, we got, we're fired up. we got a good show. I hate it when that happens. So we got the Fifth Amendment, and we know that the amendments were all placed before us by our forefathers. And we know that Congress adopted those amendments when the uh, Constitution was adopted, that they were federalist and states rights people that were bumping heads on each other with regard to the constitution the federalist gave in if you may and came up with 10 amendments the the federalist then decided hey wait a minute we not so sure about this but then they went ahead and ratified the constitution and the preamble of the constitution of the united states that uh, was held the congress was held in in um, new york on the fourth of march 1789 and it says the conventions of a number of the states having at the time of their adopting the constitution expressed a desire in order to prevent misconstruction or abuse of its powers that further declaratory and restrictive clauses should be added and as extending the ground of public confidence in the government will best ensure the benefit ends of its institution in other words what they're doing here is letting the states rights people know that they will be protected with the Bill of Rights. Then we go to the Fifth Amendment. We've already talked about one, two, three, four, and now five today. And Attorney Benson Watson is going to tell us about the Amendment Number Five, which reads: No person shall be held to answer for a capital or otherwise infamous crime unless, on the presentation, presentation, presentment, or indictment of a grand jury, except in cases arising in the land or naval forces 
or in the militia when in actual service in time of war or public danger. Nor shall any person be subject for the same offense to be twice put in jeopardy of life or limb, nor shall be compelled in any way, any criminal case, to be a witness against himself, nor be deprived of life, liberty, or property without due process of law, nor shall private property be taken for public use without just compensation. Now, that is a mouthful, isn't it? So we talked about, we, we spoke about, if you, if, you look, if you look at the Fifth Amendment, you'll see that it's pretty much broken down into five parts. You're going to have the grand jury requirement, the indictment requirement, and that's going to be interpreted not just for capital crimes. It's going to be interpreted for felonious crimes, felonies, anything that's a serious crime. Well, I've, so, I've often heard that the grand jury is sort of a rubber stamp process. What's, what's the grand jury all about? Okay, so as far as grand jury here in Texas, this that's what we're going to talk about. It's, it, it's not incorporated. That portion of the Fifth Amendment is not incorporated. We talk about what incorporated means. When the Civil War came about, we wanted to enforce the southern states to comply with the Constitution and give certain civil liberties to people of that otherwise would not have had them, otherwise known as the freedmen. Okay, we wanted to make sure that the states complied with the Constitution and gave these rights and followed, and we kind of wanted to establish kind of a, a, a union. Of, of, of We wanted to bring our states back together and establish some kind of glue. So we had the 14th Amendment. It incorporated, that means it incorporated certain rights to the states that were in the feds because before that, the federal Constitution probably did not apply, you know, on a large scale, did not apply to the states. So this... When we talk about incorporation, the grand jury requirement is one of these five. It's, you know, it's the grand jury, double jeopardy, self-incrimination, um, and the due process and the takings clause. We're going to talk about all five today. But as far as the grand juries, that one's not incorporated. And you had the state level on most states, even though it did not apply to the states, most states, other than I think two, I think it's Pennsylvania and Connecticut, have grand jury clauses. Back in the day of the founding, and this goes directly to your to answer your question. In the day of the founding, this was important because you would have a grand jury of people that were local, and you may have some kind of violation of a of a offense that was promulgated, that was made or created by the crown, okay, or, the, or parliament. And so, and that didn't really apply to the colonies. And so, a lot of times they'd use the Stamp Act, things that there weren't representation on, that weren't looked at favorably from the local standpoint so the grand juries played a very important role in the day of the founding because they were able to say we're not going to indict a local brethren for violation of this dumb stamp tax act that we didn't have a right to even talk about over in england but they tried to apply there today but today now that stamp act that was what uh Brought the Boston Tea Party on. Yeah, it was all together exactly. It, we had we had the we had we had stamp we had we had uh, taxes on stamps. We had uh, taxes on on tea and other exports imports that we had no right to say. We talked about the uh, the quartering acts. The quartering acts allowed soldiers to stay in your own place, which was another form of taxation. So those taxes weren't uh, applied to goods in England. No, it was applied only in the colony states. And, and so so that's why this was such a big push. Why are you applying it to us? And we don't have representation about what, 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 whether or not they go into effect. And, and how do people in England know about the, the local um, environment? How do they know what it costs to run a business here in the colonies? How do they know what and it we, costs to run ships? We had no voice in Parliament then either. Correct, correct. Okay. And so to pass these... These 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 other these acts and it wasn't just taxes, uh, but it was those were big things. 
Okay, but those to violate some of those laws were looked at disfavorably. To say that the local person in the colonies violated those things were looked at disfavorably in the commonplace and to the common people. And so these grand juries would step in and essentially stonewall, right? The I would say now it would be the equivalent of a federal prosecutor, which would be the representative of the crown coming in and saying, we're going to get you indicted for violation of this, the, the stamp tax, the stamp act and, and, uh, or any other kind of uh, promulgation, any other kind of regulation that was made right from Britain or England at that time, those grand juries would step in and prevent that from happening here. Then fast, fast forward a couple of centuries and yeah, yeah, and here we are, <laughs> and we have and we have a bologna sandwich. <laughs> so, in other words, it's a famous joke that a prosecutor can essentially get a ham sandwich indicted, <laughs> and if they wanted to. And we did have some grand jury reform. I I don't want to say that the grand juries play absolutely no role. Uh, it, oftentimes, we can submit a grand jury packet. Uh, if it's the right case, if it's a questionable case. We also had several cases that we talked about on here where grand juries actually get the DA out of hot water. Okay. Right? A, a lot of times the district attorney doesn't want to bring a case. A lot of times he, in a self-defense case, say, but that was maybe halfway questionable or that maybe it was a good self-defense case, but maybe it was an unfavorable person that used the self-defense against a really favorable person in the community. Okay, okay, so the DA has to do something. He has to do something because it's like, oh, man, I got a bunch of people complaining. So he'll go to the, dist- go to the grand jury, submit it to the grand jury, and, you know, it's, the, it's the, all this is secret. Right? So unless you've been a district, unless you've been a prosecutor, unless you've been a felony prosecutor, you, you're the only, it's hard to have knowledge unless you've been a prosecutor or also on the grand jury. And so, but essentially there's no regulations there's no procedure or at least there hadn't been for a long time and there's still really not anything set in stone about what procedure you use to present your case to the grand jury which is both dangerous and and favorable right because they could present it in such a way man this guy's guilty i've been dealing with this guy forever i'm getting tired of him I, i i i may not have a good case here guys but he's dealing dope and i think you guys should just charge him with this so that i got leverage Okay. And they may, they may, they may indict him. But in, you know, from the other standpoint, he could go, man, this is, I've got no choice to bring this. I don't want to bring this case. The evidence is weak. Maybe. It's weak. And I, I don't really like the way this is presented. It's just, I got a lot of back on my back and I'm just hoping you guys do the right thing. Okay. You know, okay. kind of thing. And so, sure. so the grand jury can, can play a very important role, especially from a political standpoint. They can help, uh, uh, calm and quell you know outcries to say go after somebody when it's really not just to do so and the district attorney can use that as a device to prevent right injustice the the district attorney can also use it as a device to for injustice on the other side right to to go after somebody that doesn't need to be used for but all in all i think it still plays some kind of role i think at the end of the day they do no bill people they do no bill and it's not all for political stuff. Sometimes the district attorney brings that we talked about, and I uh, I've got his permission. Harold Weezer. We talk about Harold Weezer's case from from Rosebud, where he flicked off the the police officer, drove by after the after several um out out outlaws. It was outside the police officer's authority. Okay, and they ended up 
I think storming his house with SWAT, not everything, and charging him with uh, aggravated assault with a deadly weapon on a police officer. It would have been a first degree felony. Yeah, Harold's a friend of mine, and uh, I don't know if you know it, but just yesterday, uh, Court of Appeals, the United States Federal Court of Appeals, says that free speech involves holding up your middle finger at a police <laughs> officer. So they they. So Harold was way ahead of his time. <laughs> Congratulations, Harold. <laughs> but uh, to, to that aspect, the grand jury did no bill that first degree felony, which was which was very important. And uh, I mean, it did it did take the case down a notch and said and and got everybody, even the government side. Look, if you're going to charge them, that's fine. But you're not going to charge them with if you think you got a case, present it. But you ain't going to come in here and. Go, go with this outlandish charges that really, really have no basis in law or fact. And so I think that the grand jury at the end of the day does pay, play some kind of role, but like you said, for the most part, they do rubber stamp whatever the district attorney wants, and I don't mind saying that. And I think probably a lot of district attorneys will tell you that. <laughs> well, that's where I've heard it. <laughs> uh, I mean, and so uh, from that standpoint, that's that's the first part of the Fifth Amendment. And so, again, even though the Fifth Amendment doesn't make the grand jury clause applicable here, and that's going to only apply in Texas as well on felony cases, it, it, it is important because it does apply in Texas because we have our own constitutional uh, sections about this. We have our own uh, statutes about how the grand jury operates. Uh, if you want more about that, you can you can also reach out, I'm sure, on, on Google or even holler at me by email. Then it goes um, on to talk about the uh, the military. Apparently, the military well, tribunal. Obviously, obviously, yeah. Obviously, court martial and and the militia. If you got a state militia, the state reserves now probably would be the equivalent to that. They're going to have their own procedure. They're going to have their own process. We're not going to make that apply. But if you're sure. talking about just on the federal level and a federal court procedure, you're going to have to be indicted for a serious felony. Okay. So this okay. double jeopardy. I've I've heard a whole lot about that through my years. I've I've kind of wondered because I'm I'm seeing what I think to be kind of a watering down of that right because I've heard of people getting tried for a situation then what seems to be to be the same set of facts they get tried for a lesser offense after they're found innocent of the first offense so tell us about that I'm not going to we 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 talk about how much we avoid this and when you talk about how much it's been watered down you're absolutely correct uh, it, this, it's definitely not what it, it used to be. It does not have the teeth that it used to be, nor do any of the constitutional amendments really to that to that effect. But it's so complicated; it, it has gotten so complicated that scholars on both sides of the on both sides of the issue in both camps could disagree. But the the general from the general standpoint on your double jeopardy is you're not going to be put in jeopardy of a criminal conviction of a guilty conviction more than once. And a lot of times what would happen is in the in the say in the day of the founders, right, you would get tried over and over and over and over again. Okay, and not only would this have this psychological effect on you, but it would have an economic effect on you. Oh, absolutely. And you would essentially bring down businesses, okay, because they would spend all their money litigating with the government instead of Right, spending it towards their business, and they would go out of business, and so the government would get the outcome that it wanted, even though it didn't get a criminal conviction. And so, what the framers here are trying to do is prevent both psychological and economic right injury. They don't want you to just be tried over and over and over and over again. However, they develop different standards now. 
that if it's got one element that the other one did not and when you talk about elements so it would be like if it was burglary a standard burglary it's a, just a breaking and entering of a habitua- habitation okay at nighttime okay and so each one of those things okay with the intent with the intent to commit another felony therein okay and so each one of those things is an element right each one of those things breaking entering habitation nighttime specific intent to commit another kind of crime and they don't don't have to try all those at the same time they can split them up they can split what do you mean by that what do you mean we can have one trial for where it involves some of the elements for some crime and then well okay let me think of an idea uh uh Somebody who's charged with uh, murder or not murder, a homicide with a deadly weapon when they're drunk and driving a car. Okay. They go to trial and the jury says, ah, uh, no, no homicide. Can they be, then be retried for DWI? So traditionally, I would have told you absolutely not. I would say that the DWI was encompassed, right, within the deadly, within the, because the you, you would have had to have been driving the vehicle, which would have been your deadly weapon. They're saying that it was, right, it, it depends on so normally yes I would have said that would have been subsumed it would have been encompassed by your by your larger larger case the DWI would have been encompassed by your case of, of homicide but now it, it would seem to me that it, that's what double jeopardy is all about but go ahead but, but now but now what if they never did make an allegation about you being intoxicated from using the vehicle okay if they did not make that allegation? If they did not make that allegation. Okay, what if they submitted the proof? Then I would say traditionally, yes, but now the courts are sometimes saying, and I'm telling you, I, I, I don't even feel comfortable giving you a definitive answer on any of this. Well, I understand. Because it's so, because hotly, it, <laughs> because it's so hotly contested right it's now. It's mushy. actually a hot topic, right? And, and so you would have probably some courts tell you that there was an element within the DWI that wasn't an element that required proof on the homicide trial and so because one required an element that the other one did not then it would not be double jeopardy and they could come back and try you on the DWI I think a lot of courts would tell you no there's no way that's absolutely that, that's what that's what what the proof was is that he was reckless or, or that that he was indifferent to life because he was intoxicated at the time I, I just think that it it, it could go it, all of these cases it, you never know what you're gonna get with a double jeopardy claim. well in Texas uh the high court is the court of criminal appeals with regard to these matters, right? Correct, but they haven't and, spoken and on. What a lot are the of two kinds of errors that uh, they recognize? Uh, absolute reversible error, and then well, just does it affect your substantial rights? Well, I've, I've heard the two kinds is the harmless error and the error that was not uh, reversible. Yeah, well, or constitutional. The, the, the one that was not uh, mentioned by the lawyer in the court. In other words. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, the two kinds of errors that really don't matter. In other words, uh, they uphold the conviction. Yes, okay, again, that's I got the you. Uh, Court of Criminal Appeals in Texas. So that's that's why you you're having a difficult time talking about it. Okay, so on television, we've heard over and over again: you have the right to remain silent. Anything you say can and will be used against you. Now, tell us, Ross, real short, and then you can elaborate. What should we do when we hear those words spoken to our face? I think there was a good. Uh Facebook out by some lawyers in Vegas. There was a lot of people have been seeing, and their whole thing to the title to their little uh, video that they did was just shut up. Just shut up. Okay, sounds like. Uh, so I think that that uh, I think that gives you a really good idea about 
what you should do, how you should use this Fifth Amendment right, and uh, it's definitely something that should be used a whole lot more. It should be. Than what, uh, and when you get to the jail and, and your wife comes in and asks you what's going on, what happened, what should you do there? You should, technically with your wife, you're going to have a privilege. You're going to have a spousal privilege, okay? But they're going to record. They're going to record you. Like what Rick was, we were about to say at the exact same time. They're going to record you, and they're going to have on that recording that it's being recorded, and you are submitting and giving consent to us for this recording right before you do talk to them. So in that effect... It's not going to be privileged anymore, and they're going to be able to use that recorded conversation. Also, if your wife comes to see you at jail and they don't have the pre-recording before she talks to you in the phone through the booth, I assure you that they're going to have some sort of sign. They're going to have a sign either in the hallway before you get to the room. They're going to have the signs out in the room where you're talking. They're going to have the signs out on the wife's side somewhere. They're going to have a sign somewhere telling you that the that all of the conversations are being recorded. Even if they don't have the sign, I'm telling you, you need to be careful about what you say in those conversations because I can tell you, I have lost cases before the cases ever got started for what people have said on the jail recordings. Okay, and so just be careful about what you say. I hope none of the listeners are going to go to jail. But I'm just telling you, maybe if you got a loved one that's in there and he's trying to tell you about what happened over the phone, maybe you say, look, I listened to Ben Watts on the radio this, this, this morning. And he said that up. maybe we shouldn't talk about this right now. Okay, and so whew, I, that's something I, I can't stress enough. I'm glad you brought that up. I wasn't even going to talk about the, the recorded phone calls at the jail, but absolutely, you, you got to be careful. And then, hey, Depending on what kind of case it is, your the love of your life could be trying to set you up, right, on those recorded conversations. And so just be just be on the lookout for that in a family law case to can, come in the can, near future. Can the love of your life waive the privilege or do you have to waive the privilege? Depends on what it's about. If it's gonna be about a family violence or something that happened within the home or to that effect, then obviously that that privilege is not going to apply to her she can waive that but if it's going to be about some kind of communication that you made to that spouse that is relating to a crime that's just happened to be part of conversations you had with your significant other then you can invoke the spousal privilege which means you can prevent your spouse from testifying okay Okay. Um, so what else you got for us on self-incrimination? So, so on self-incrimination, here, this is what we talk about when, when somebody says, they call in and says, well, I didn't get to, he didn't let me talk to my lawyer. Or, you know, they didn't read me my Miranda rights. I get that all the time. I mean, people call in all the time, right, with some sort of problem. They think that they want me to get their case thrown out because the police officer didn't read you Miranda. The okay. technical ouster. Yeah, so let me, so that's going to be, you know, you have the right to remain silent. You have the right to an attorney. If you cannot afford an attorney, won't be appointed to you. You have the right to terminate questioning at any time. Okay, those are going to be, the, when they when you read you your Miranda, those are going to be the rights that I'm talking about. And uh, here's the thing. Miranda's not going to get your case thrown out most, most of the time anyway, even if it's violated. All Miranda's going to talk about is statements testimonial statements by you that would be used as evidence in your trial so let's say that you get stopped and there's evidence of marijuana he smelled the marijuana uh 
maybe the dog hit. Maybe they never even asked you. Maybe we're, we're not even talking about any statements, but then they got the marijuana. They found it right there in the console of your truck because you weren't smart enough to put it right under the seat or anything else. Right? And you left it right there or maybe burning in the ashtray. Okay, and so we're going to take that and we're going to use that to prosecute. Nothing about Miranda is going to affect any of that physical evidence. That would be something you'd be hoping for the Fourth Amendment to come in and help you out. That's kind of a different sort of self-incrimination when you leave it burning in the (laughs) ashtray. What what self-incrimination might be, and we're going to get into, I'll start with the issues. It it really doesn't affect it, but I'm going to start with what it could affect. Is what you say. So if you say there's the marijuana burning in the ashtray, that's it. Does this, the issue is going to be, does that statement, because that's incriminatory, right? That actually incriminates you and shows that that was yours. You knew where it was. You obviously were in control of it because it was in maybe your car. You had knowledge about what was going on, the confines, the the scenario within the environment itself. You had you had knowledge about what 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 the environment was. So you're trying to throw that out because you want to say that 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 blunt was the passengers. Okay. Now I've got to figure out a way to make Miranda come into play. Well, I'm not probably in that scenario. Roadside questioning in a DWI situation. You get stopped. He's asking about DWI. Right, that has been by law by the courts. I don't know why. I don't necessarily agree with the ruling in all in all respects. But I only had two drinks. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> They'll tell you that everybody says two drinks. So maybe you want to think about a different way to way to say that. And I will tell you. I mean, you can't win for drinks. losing on that. You know, the prosecutor tells the jury he said he only had two drinks, and then he laughs, and all the jurors laugh. <laughs> <laughs> So you gotta be you gotta be careful about what it is that you say, but if you say two drinks right there, right away, you're giving the police officer a reason to think that you're somewhat intoxicated. And remember, you don't have to be .08. You do not have to be .08 to be intoxicated. You, the police officer can make his own determination, his own opinion, right? That you have lost the use of your mental or physical faculties. Okay, and so you don't even have to be a point oh eight. And with that being said, the police officer could still get probable cause to arrest you for a DWI, even with two drinks. Maybe you're a person that has some kind of extra effect to alcohol that others don't. Maybe you're somebody that has a health, right, some kind of, of, of health condition that makes you more susceptible to the effects of alcohol. Maybe you're a person that's on another kind of medication that makes you more susceptible to the, to the effects of alcohol. And so that officer can still say, and I'm not saying he's going to win at jury trial, but we're not talking about that. I'm trying to save you from getting arrested. Okay, but if, if, you're, if you're telling him two drinks, that may be enough to give him probable cause, depending on the circumstances. Now, if, if the video shows the guy's walking fine, talking fine, absolutely. I've had a police officer say on tape before, I don't know what the police officer was thinking. He said, oh, you... Well, you're walking fine and talking fine, so why are you saying you got all these problems? Well, I used that against him in a motion to suppress. So you said he was walking fine and talking fine, so yeah. then obviously he wasn't intoxicated. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. Anyway, I got so off on took, a little tangent. That took away his probable cause. That took away his probable cause. We were able to get that case thrown out. But, so police officers, if you're listening today, be careful about what you say. You got to stop, too. <laughs> 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 but, but you gotta be you got to be careful about what you say. 
And I'll, I'm going I'm to get to the point. I'm sorry I digress a little bit. It's ADHD in me. But, but we're getting to, do you, are you in custody and are you being interrogated? So the roadside, we know that the roadside questionings on a DWI stop is not what we call custodial interrogation. You're not going to be in custody and you're not going to be being interrogated. So then at what point are we in custody and are we being interrogated? Well, when they read those Miranda rights, I think that's a pretty good ticket. To- <laughs> well, yeah, if they do read it, if they do read it. So if you're in the if you're in the car and the police are, whoa, man, what's that smell? You got marijuana? You say, yeah, officer, I got it right here in the car. At that point, you were never placed in custody. And so at the first at the first instance, we got to ask, what is custody? From the Fourth Amendment standpoint, seizure is easy. Okay, seizure is any kind of like submission to a show of authority. Yeah, they put and, you in handcuffs. Well, is handcuffs is is handcuffs only a seizure? Or is that custody? No, oh, I would think it's both. They seize your body. Exactly. So a custody is always a seizure, but a seizure is not always custody. Okay. okay. So you can be detained. I don't know if you guys got into Terry style. I told you I didn't want to watch your just a little bit deal yeah. because I was so upset on the Fourth Amendment. Yeah. So so in traffic stop situation, and I'm going to go into a little bit of the Fourth Amendment here in a traffic stop situation. We're both looking at, right, the detention. It, it's sort of like a Terry stop. And Terry, uh, he was a, a, a well, well-versed well cop that was walking the beat of the street in, the, in downtown, see some guys walking around a building, and they keep walking around. They walk across the street, walk around a building, walk across the street, walk around a building, and they walk across the street, talk to a, another guy. Wait, well, they ain't looking for the Saturday sale. Yeah. Okay, they, they're not going to the front door. They're not walking in. They're walking around the building, looking through the windows at each one. They're casing the place. Right. Okay, and so what what, uh, what Mr. Officer McFadden did in Terry, and this was in Ohio, he, he walks up to him, and he's like, what are you guys doing? What are you guys up to? And they start acting really nervous, right? He knows one of them, right? And then he sees a bulge. He says, man, and he pushes him up against the wall, does a really quick Terry pat down, for weapons, because he's 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 starting to fear for his life. He was just going to question them about what they were doing, right? Okay, and so under the Fourth Amendment, when he walks up and questions those those guys, that's a seizure. Okay, so that would be a seizure under the Fourth Amendment, and he would ha- now have to have what we call reasonable suspicion, which is just slightly less than probable cause. It's saying there's something there telling me that there's criminal activity afoot. I don't have, I can't put my hand on it. I can't say that criminal activity happened. I can't say, maybe it has happened, but I can't say for sure, but I know that there is something based on criminal activity, connected to criminal activity, that allows me to come in and at least ask a couple of questions. Very briefly. It's very brief. Stop. Okay? And it's not something that you can sit there and hold him forever just on based on what Officer McFadden saw. Right? But then he saw the nervous activity with the bulge, right? And then had had a reason to pat them down, which led now to the Terry pat down law that made that that's what allowed that case allowed police officer to pat you down so and that's that's primary for the uh, protection of the officer right yes absolutely for protection of the so there's got to be some evidence that that the officer perceives to show him that there's a threat to officer safety okay so taking that into consideration of traffic stops when you actually violate the traffic law when you speed that's probable cause okay now I don't want to get into the uh, it's a custodial arrest and things like that but 
technically under the Constitution, and this was a Atwater versus Lago Vista. This was a Texas case. Atwater versus Lago Vista. The lady didn't have her seatbelt on and got arrested. The police officer arrested her with her two kids in the car. We talked about that. It was really unreasonable, right? And so she appealed to the United States Supreme Court. The United States Supreme Court said, under the Constitution, under the common law, that's what we look at. Was it unreasonable? No, because there was probable cause to arrest her. She broke the law. She could be arrested. So, with a traffic offense, that's what's funny about this, is that there could be probable cause to arrest for a traffic offense. But we look at a traffic stop in Terry. We look at it as a detention. It needs to be no longer than necessary to write the ticket and let you go. Okay? Or if you're going to arrest them, you need to go ahead and arrest them. Okay? You can get arrested, right, for violating traffic, but that doesn't happen. But the officer's got a very short time to make up his mind. So... In that seizure, he doesn't have long to make up his mind whether you're going to be seized, right, or whether you're going to be arrested. And so then you've got to make your determination, okay, if he puts you in cuffs, is that an arrest? Probably, but not all the time, right? Not all the time, because you could be, maybe maybe the circumstances develop really quick. The officer needs to figure out whether or not uh, you're, you are who you say you are, or whether or not the other person, maybe he puts you in handcuffs for his own safety, just to make sure. So is that that's just a detention. Okay. Okay, versus a seat, versus an arrest. So we're looking, is it the functional equivalent of an arrest? And it could be because there's there's 20 officers, you know, all surrounding a guy with guns. I would say that that's probably an arrest. But he's not in handcuffs. So handcuffs can aren't determinative, but they are persuasive. I, I would say so. <laughs> <laughs> if you've ever been in handcuffs, you know what I'm talking about. They're pretty persuasive. That's <laughs> like what Clyde and I used to say, if you... If you if, Hire us. We've been arrested. We know. We know what you. <laughs> we know what you're going through. So, <laughs> and not you. I, I'm speaking for myself here. Right? <laughs> but, but, but. So yeah, you got to ask: Are you in custody? And all these things come into play. Remember, they've got so much time to act. Well, if they go outside that scope, they're going to have to arrest you. And so I think if they they continue to hold you there, right, for too long, they're going to look at that is either an arrest or an invalid detention okay under terry so it's either going to be an arrest or an invalid detention if they don't have a reason to prolong the traffic stop there's not going to be a reason for them under the fourth amendment to justify their actions so then they're going to have to but if there is then they've got a lawful stop and you're in custody okay so now then even though you're in custody is it interrogation Okay, and so I, I know I'm getting excited about this, and it's a lot. Well, I can it, tell you love it, but that's the uh, criminal lawyer and you coming yeah, out. Yeah, it's a lot. It's a lot. And so uh, there is a process you go by to, to make sure you see these facts, and you always start with the Fourth Amendment to make sure you've got a valid stop, a valid seizure. And, w- and does that seizure escalate to custody? That's Once why you, cus- you got to go to Benton Ross Watson when you have a situation <laughs> like this because he knows the steps. Well, we have, we have a, a two more out of five that we need well, to talk I, to in I'm a few a, minutes. So uh, I'm going to talk. I'm going to talk. I'm going to talk next week when we get to the Sixth Amendment about interrogation more. Okay. And so I wasn't going to harp too much on interrogation, but is it calculated to elicit an incriminating response? Right. If you blurt out that there's marijuana or drugs in your car or something like that, you're not going to be protected by the by the Fifth Amendment. Okay. It's it's self incrimination. You cannot be compelled. You cannot. It cannot make you come to grand jury up here. Right and testify, right it, to 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 where it incriminates you. Same same thing. 
a police officer cannot force you to incriminate yourself. And they also can't use tactics, which we're going to talk about next week in a very good case out of Rhode Island, right? Can't use tactics that are calculated to make you, right, say something incriminating. They know, right? They know that, well, they can, right, if you've, if you've waived your Miranda, if they read your Miranda, but they haven't, then they, they, they've got to be very careful. So we, we're going to talk about uh, the, the consequences of that right next week. But for, this, for the fourth, fourth section of the, the Fifth Amendment is the due process. And for due process, we have both procedural and substantive. Now, I know that due process is a, a mighty big part of the Fifth Amendment. And, and that might be something... Uh, that could take a whole session, frankly, because it is complex and complicated. But if and we you, only have a few more minutes here, Ross. So. Yeah, but if you remember, we had the, the Third Amendment, and we, it was quartering of soldiers where soldiers took over their house without your consent. And so we talked about there really hasn't been any good cases litigated, but what the Third Amendment was important for is showing us that there was rights implied by design within the Constitution. In other words, the First Amendment says speech, but it doesn't say conduct. So there had to be some implication that speech was broader than just verbal. Kind of like uh, Harold's case, lifting of the middle finger. <laughs> right. It, it, was, it involved more. There was more rights involved than simply what the Constitution said. And so procedural is going to speak to notice. Okay, did you get notice like you're supposed to under the rules? The other one is going to be substantive, right? It, did you... There, are you are your rights violated in such a way that you cannot use right other implied rights that we talked about those penumbras the, those those rights that maybe is there some uh, kind of disadvantage given to you by the under the First Amendment and that would allow you to also make a Fifth Amendment claim and that would be vagueness overbreath right a, a lot of times you can tie in and that would be like if a statute is is uh, you can't understand what the statute's meaning is. And so because you can't understand what the statute's meaning is, you don't know what the process is going to be in order if you want to exercise your rights. And so it puts a chill on your exercise of your other important rights. And so that would be a Fifth Amendment claim under due process. Takings, we talked about, I think it's relevant to today with the pipelines. Well, back, back to due process, I know that there's a lot of U.S. Supreme Court cases that... Um, imply, if you may, or apply the due process clause to a broad area of cases. In other words, uh, due process has to be given to almost any situation involving the taking of property or the taking of uh, assets or taking of your body. Correct. All that. The due process is applicable and, in and all. And that was applied in the 14th Amendment, I believe? Both, yes. So, so that's what I was trying to say. You, yeah. you, you, the Fourteenth Amendment is going to have a due process clause on it as well. You're also going to have your substantive, just just generally, you're going to have your substantive and your procedural due process rights, okay, talked about. And so, when you, when they talk about, when you hear lawyers talk about your procedural due process, you're talking about notice and things like that in an adjudication in a, in a some kind of proceeding. When you talk about your substantive rights, that's saying there's been some kind of law or the law is unclear. As far as exercising my other constitutional rights. Now, this last part says, nor shall private property be taken for public use without just compensation. I know here in Milam County, uh, we have several pipelines coming across. Correct. And it's eminent domain. Whenever a power line goes through or a road goes through, eminent domain, 
Is that what we're talking about here, Ross? It, correct. So the state's going to have the right to come in and take private property as long as they pay you the fair market value at the time of the taking for that property. Now, so just compensation, I mean, when you say a fair, fair market, market value, that's, that's like, well, you know, I have a big old oak tree and I'm going <laughs> to build my house there. Uh, I've been wanting to build my house there for a long time and I'm going to retire and I want to put my and they're going to put a power line right over the top of that and knock that oak i am so upset to me the market value is a lot higher than market value right correct and then you got and you got people that are out saying you know i'll sell to whatever somebody's willing to pay (laughs) well what the supreme court or what a texas supreme court is probably going to say about what somebody's willing to pay is what a willing buyer non-coerced non-pressured buyer would be willing to pay taking the advantages and disadvantages of the property. Okay, and so what that means, who knows? That's why there's a lot of good lawyers out there that do nothing but eminent domain, and they are going to argue right on specific types of cases that certain property is way more valuable than what the government is saying that it is, and obviously you can have huge litigation over this. I've been involved in some of those cases uh, involving power lines and others involving pipelines, and Obviously, when you put a power line through that's got about eight wires and these big, huge towers, it's going to affect the property value of the whole of the property. You know, if you got 500 acres and it goes across the side of Correct. it, it'll affect the whole property. Whereas the neighbor who's just across the gravel road, he gets nothing because even though the power line's sticking up right next to his house, uh, they haven't know, actually taken anything. They haven't taken anything according to our law. So it's that's a tricky thing. Uh, when you start talking about the whole of the property and the value lost. Anyway, that's another good place to think about getting a lawyer because, you know, the power line companies, the pipeline companies, they all want to stick it through as fast and as easy and as cheaply as possible. So they're not going to come in and offer you what you could get if you had a good lawyer. And you have these great debates, right? Because you you say it's got to be for a public use, but the pipeline companies are going to make all the money. Yeah. Pipeline companies and the oil companies and the shippers and transporters are going to be the ones that make all the money. So where's the public use coming in? That's right. So and so so the public use is going to come from the lower gas prices because transportation is cheaper and overall market and economy is a scale kind of thing come into play. And because we can transport it to Houston from from Lubbock to Houston much quicker with a pipeline, it's going to it's going to show up at the pump. Commerce clause, I think, is what you're talking about. <laughs> <laughs> but that's that's going to say that's the public use. That's what we get. It and same with the economic renovation stuff in Kello and Berman and well, Ross, the Hawaii. I'm, we're going to have another segment after tactical snacking. Would you? Uh, would you be willing to hang in here with me and? talk about guns a little bit yeah yeah sure okay tell us uh tell us how to get in touch with yeah you. if you guys we always love questions we get a lot of emails been getting a lot of emails go ahead and email me at benton at watson.legal that's benton at watson.legal make sure you leave your phone number because uh, i can't always get an email back to you but uh, it's a lot easier for me to call you sometimes but you can call us at 254-605-4140 that's 254-605-4140 or come see me down here in Cameron at 105 East Main Street, big milk cow on the side, can't miss it, or call us for an appointment <laughs> in Brazos County or down in Houston. So I look forward yeah. to speaking with you guys about the show. Thank you. My name is Richard Dodd, and you can get in touch with me by email at justice at respectforyou.com or just go on the web at respectforyou.com and send us a note. So y'all hang on. All right, respectforyou.com, remember that. 
<laughs> How can you forget it, huh? Hey, I'm just trying to. I hope the judges remember it. <laughs> Respect well, for me. Respect we, for we me. demand it. <laughs> All right, Mr. Watson. Uh, let's talk a little bit about guns. I mean, it is a gun show. Have you uh, been involved with, handled any gun cases, shootings or possession, unlawful? I mean, you know, something to do with guns. Yeah, I'll tell you. Let's I'm, talk I'm, about some true stories here. Yeah, several. I mean, but we definitely don't like those cases because it just complicates the matter, especially with today, with the, the political pressure behind it. And I, sometimes I thank goodness that we live in a in a more rural society that's more accepting than where we were, say, if you know you were in somewhere in Ohio or D.C., District of Columbia, because goodness, if you're up there, you're just—it's almost like you're, you're child molester. You've got some kind of gun crime. Well, you know so. the, the old saying, "Caught with a smoking gun." I mean, uh, <laughs> it's, uh, it's it's pretty damning. And so, yeah, but sometimes it, sometimes it's taken out of context. But you have cases, I think, that uh, show the consequences. Of, of dealing with that, especially from the civil side, which we don't see on this show a lot. So I'm glad you're here to talk about that. Yeah, happy to be here. Tell us a little bit about a couple of your cases. Uh, you don't have to name names or anything, but you, surely there's a story or two in there. People fiddling with a firearm and when they're not supposed to be even around them. Fiddling. Shooting them. Yeah, <laughs> sh- sh- not, not necessarily intentionally doing something wrong, but uh, maybe they're otherwise not supposed to be around them maybe their parents said you're not supposed to go around them and then ended up you know pulling the trigger or hitting the firing pin had two of those cases ended up hitting another person now had several it's a crime isn't it to allow minor access to a gun correct so you gotta be we gotta be careful about uh, what minors you had had a couple of those cases we've had other cases i think that have happened more than you think and matt's always talking about don't just shoot your firearm up in the air because the bullet's going to come down, simple physics, right? It's going to—it's what we call trigonometry, <laughs> and so it's going to—it's—it's going to come down at some point, and so you got to be careful. I can tell you, I've had at least two shotgun cases where we've shot up in the air and had the the pellets come down on the, the BBs come down on somebody else's house, on somebody else's car, near somebody else's person near somebody else's child and it wasn't intentional by any means but it definitely gives rise in some cases to a criminal charge especially when it puts some kind of property or person uh, in near danger and what i mean is one time i think we had we had babies come down hit a car and the guy was just 10 feet away and so that ended up being a reckless discharge kind of case um, you can be, and remember, you can have you can be charged with an assault. You can be charged with an assault, just an assault period for reckless conduct. Okay, and that 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 bullet that bullet can always be what we call your agent. It's just an extension of your body, and so you can always be charged with that assault case, and you can always then be charged with the deadly conduct, and that goes to double jeopardy. If 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 you're charged with the assault. Okay, with the deadly weapon, can you also be charged with the deadly conduct? I can tell you right now, we've appealed cases that that has been upheld. I disagree with those decisions. I would sit here and just rant for an hour and tell you why those certain of those cases are wrong. 
But like I told you, you would have scholars on both sides of the double jeopardy issue earlier in the earlier discussion talk about why. And so the, what I, what my purpose of telling you this is if you've got a firearm involved and you place somebody or property in their danger, don't don't expect them to come light on you. They're going to bring every possible charge that they can bring if it's the right county and there's the right political players involved. Or the wrong county. Or the wrong county. Have a look at it. Yeah, <laughs> so, uh, so what about illegal carrying firearms? What What's uh, oh, the worst man, case that you've ever seen? Like oh, man. Somebody who really got nailed. Worst case, you mean for for, for almost for, for your case? client for for someone who was carrying that weapon? They're all pretty much you know they have a firearm in the car and they're felons. I mean, it, it's those cases happen just so often and they're traveling, and sometimes you feel for the person. And I, I've I've warned uh, on this show about a couple of cases we had uh, some high school kids aged. I mean, they've been out of high school one year, you know, been out of high school two years. And for some reason, they they were on probation, or they had already had a felony that maybe they took probation for. Yeah. And they took it while they were eighteen, while they were a senior in high school. And now now they're one year out, two years out, in college, helping a roommate move. Okay. And they're moving all this stuff, and either the roommates. I mean, I've had I've had at least five of these, just like this. I mean, just like this. When I'm talking about this case. Yeah. These facts. These these same facts. I mean, almost not not exactly identical but i mean you they're so similar that it's just it's it's just a stark i mean it's just crazy how similar the facts are that that the the guns either under the seat in the friend's car that they're helping move or right in one of the bags that they're moving okay it's got a gun and and off and in four of those five okay and in one of the five there was there was drugs involved they, the guys were smoking a little marijuana while they were moving Right, which led to the search, which found the gun, which led to the other charge. But well, you got to get your pay some way. <laughs> you got to get it there. Yeah. So, but in four of them, the only reason we even had a search is the driver is being really upfront, young kid. Driver t- says, uh, "Yeah, officers, you got anything in the car? I need to be aware of." Yeah, I got a, I got a, uh, my dad's, you know, a pistol under the seat, or I got, you know, my, my gun, my hunting rifle, and a. You know, in a in a truck with everything else, and then they run the passenger, and the passenger's got a felony, and boom! And it's like, man, he this wasn't this wasn't one of those cases, but man. But that wasn't his possession, was it? I mean, and that's the issue. That's the issue. And so okay. we we get and we get whether it but is he still spends the night in jail, exactly, and he still gets arrested. And so a lot of times you would say it is in his possession. Okay, and I would argue that it's not, Rick. I would argue one, too, because you still got the knowledge requirement. In order to be in possession of something, you have to know that it's there to do it voluntarily. And, and that's the one thing we talk about with jurors. Sometimes when we have a possession case, we'll give them uh, Clyde, Clyde Chandler, a mentor of mine that I worked with here forever, used to give them a, one of those, a Bible. Yeah. Used to give one of the jurors, prospective jurors on the on the veneer, the, the veneer panel, and, and used to give them that and, and, and ask them, are you in possession of that? And they'd say, yeah. And he'd say, well, then give me my dollar in there because you're not in possession of that. Right? And they didn't. They didn't know that the dollar was in there. Right. And so if it was a dollar, yeah, they're going to say that was in their possession. But if it's drugs, they're going to say, man, I didn't know that was in there. I thought it was a holy Bible. Absolutely. So they're going to say they're not in possession. So 
those are the unlawful possession cases. I think, yeah, a lot of times possession is an issue. But we we have so many segments on, on this show going into what is and what is not possession and how much you can be litigating. But you don't want to find yourself in a in a position to have to argue whether or not there was possession. Have you ever uh, defended a murder case? No, not the murder case. We've 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 worked on as co-counsel a couple of manslaughter cases. We worked on involving firearms. No, involving vehicles. Okay. Okay, another well, deadly weapon, huh? Yeah, another deadly weapon. Though. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. And another, a, a knife and a knife, but okay. no firearms uh, yet as far as murder cases are concerned. Well, I've, uh, Ross, I've had a few cases involving firearms as, uh, in my career. I, I remember one involving a BB gun in the eye. These were minor children. Oh, they were preteens, like you know, 12, 13 maybe. And... Got shot in the eye, and you'd think, well, that's not good. You know, we always learn that we don't play with rattlesnakes, and we don't get <laughs> shot in the eye, right? <laughs> well, the, the young man uh, um, had what we call traumatic glaucoma, and the, the parents hired me to do what I could. And we got the uh, homeowner's insurance involved, and they did pay for this young man's medical and his problems that he, he had to <clears throat> he had to put a drop in his eye each day for the rest of his life because of traumatic glaucoma so that the glaucoma wouldn't get so bad that he would lose his eye. So yeah, he he suffered and he had problems and he had medical for a long time, but fortunately because of medicine, uh, he's doing pretty good today. He continued on through life, played baseball, and has done well. Had another one where uh, it was a little more complicated, had a pellet gun. You know, we don't think of BB guns and pellet guns as causing a lot of harm. But this fellow, he got shot upside the head when he was about 15 by a, a buddy of his that was literally shooting at him. But, you know, he didn't think it was going to hurt him. He was real sorry. <laughs> yeah, but it, uh, it it hit him in the skull and, and it cracked a little bone and caused a little hemorrhaging inside the brain. And uh, fortunately, again, modern medicine helped him through this and he's doing pretty good these days so but, let me ask you this so, but it was a, a homeowner's insurance situation. so in civil and you're always telling me i call you routinely with cases and you're so negative <laughs> <laughs> well it depends on the facts ross <laughs> and 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 uh you're always asking me well one you're asking me a big big part of duty i think in this case you have a duty not to shoot somebody i think that's right and you're Just breaching like, that duty by doing by doing that but shooting them, yeah. but i think there's another issue then after in a lot of cases duty is a big deal though with you and we talk about do you have a duty but in this case we think you had a duty and there was a breach but then you were going to ask me well was it is that foreseeable so why don't you explain to everybody why, why how can you if, if let's say the homeowner's insurance wouldn't have covered it could you have held that guy civilly responsible for that? And two, the homeowners are going to assert the same defense. Maybe it's not foreseeable that that would happen. Well, yeah, and 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 I'm thinking of a couple other situations where I could talk a little bit more about homeowners. Uh, the thing is that if if it's a crime, and I had a, had one where a, a shooter just goes crazy and runs up the road with his two pistols, and somebody drives up pulling a horse trailer, and he shoots both of the ladies and kills them. Wow. And, uh, you know, it's an intentional act, right? Um, he ran back to his house, and the police came, and they fired canisters of tear gas into it and busted all the windows and broke down the door, and he wound up uh, getting taken out by the police. So he no longer has the homeowner's 
homestead exemption, you see. So <laughs> so I'm hired wow. by the uh, minor children to go after the house, which wow. which we were able to secure and sell and, and got some, some um, you know, degree of justice there. I guess we got 100% of what was available. But what you just mentioned would be the, the, the what could we get from the 14-year-old. I mean, he has no money. He has no insurance. It was an intentional act. So it wouldn't do you any good to go after him under Texas laws that allow uh, all these exemptions from execution of property, but also an opportunity to uh, take bankruptcy for, you know, like $1,000. You go bankrupt and knock out all your debts. So you got to be practical about it uh, when you spend the kind of money that's necessary to take one of these cases to court. Uh, uh, another case I was handling where a young man was horsing around, fiddling around a gun with a with his twenty two pistol that his grandpa had told him where it was and said, "You're going to get this when I die." Uh, the young man literally points it at his his buddy's stomach and pulls the trigger he did not check the chamber and it fired into the fellow's gut it did pierce about uh, three pieces of the young man's small intestines but again guess what modern medicine, medicine they open up the kid they snip out the little pieces of the intestines that are uh, penetrated they split them and, and put them together the way they should the uh, Medical literature tells us that in that event that there is a high degree of likelihood that there will be no problems. Six months later, the young man is throwing the shot put for his local high school track team. Oh. It's it's like a miracle. I mean, you know, and, and as, as far as I know, this has been 20 years ago. Uh, from what I understand, he's still doing great, having no problems at all. Again, it's a miracle. That would not have happened 100 years ago or 200 years ago, but good for him. And that was another situation where the uh, homeowners kicked in because the grandfather actually was criminally liable for allowing that child to get a hold of that gun and causing these problems. And so are you involved uh, on the in any part of the criminal process and talking to the district attorneys or anybody in this, you know, on that side of the wall when you're representing somebody on the civil side? Sure. There's always a, a crimes victim coordinator, and that coordinator helps coordinate situations where if I cannot get any kind of justice, then there's the thing called restitution. So I want to make sure that my uh, client gets some sort of degree of justice, and sometimes that's the last resort. Now, now we've actually gone together on a couple of cases over to the district attorney's office, not in a shooting case, yeah. but on some other kind of uh, securities fraud type of cases. And right. Tried to uh, get them to see the the restitution value that needs to be made for some of the folks, local yeah. folks here. And I mean, the, even though my well, point is because because, yeah. because we were in a position to recognize a crime. Correct. And I feel like as an attorney, it's an officer of the court, it's our duty to report these kinds of crimes correct and you know beyond that it's our duty to help our clients so again <laughs> you know if you come to me and, and, and ross and you become our client then uh, there's that certain knowledge that we've gained over the years and our education and experience that can help you so another another case i had involved a uh, shooting uh, in a couple of them actually where uh one where the husband shoots the wife 
and ex-wife and then takes himself out and that is another one of those intentional cases that I mentioned where there's no homeowner's insurance but again because he's deceased there is no longer a homestead exemption and there were a couple of miners involved in that case and we were able to secure the home sell the home and distribute that money I, I don't think we took a fee on that case because you know they were it was a situation where they just needed our help and I was happy to do it uh, I remember one case you talk about criminal aspect of it uh, it was really an interesting situation where a fellow who's going to collect a debt he loads up his pistol and he goes to a place of business the uh, person who owed the debt comes walking out of the place of business and he uh, summons him over to his vehicle and pokes the end of that business end of that barrel out <laughs> Gosh. and uh the uh, fellow who owed the debt grabbed the gun and pulled it towards him allegedly i mean this is what the uh, witness who by the way was holding the other end of the gun was saying and it shot him right square in the middle of the chest he fell back dead so there was an indictment there was a grand jury finding there was a trial for murder and during the process of that, I got involved because um, the family, of course, was uh, suing the shooter. And the homeowner's insurance was already in the process of having what they call a declaratory judgment, where they were trying to get the judge to rule that because it was an intentional act, they didn't have to pay, they didn't have to defend. Uh, but that was, that was successfully held off until the criminal trial occurred, where the shooter got on the witness stand and did a very good job for himself as far as convincing the jury that he had no intent of shooting the the deceased and the jury went with him and found him guilty of negligent homicide which is a misdemeanor in Texas but negligence also implies that there was no intent therefore we were able to collect all of that homeowner's insurance for Which the actually, kids. if people didn't catch it, it actually worked out in your favor. It worked out, yeah. Because if it's intentional act, the, the insurance policy may not apply to an it intentional It would act. not imply, yes. So this actually was helped out from the civil standpoint, yep. even though it might not have been looked like justice from the criminal side of things, it was a lot more justice That's from absolutely. the civil side of yeah, things. It worked out monetarily for the family. You know, they uh, they were able to have a pretty good life even without the breadwinner being there helping them out so you know that was an interesting case as far as the connection between civil and criminal that is that's a it doesn't it doesn't happen we and we're always talking about that too i'll call you with a real bad case and you'll say well that's an intentional act it means the policy is probably not going to apply i don't know that we can do anything from a civil standpoint it's going to be more criminal so i'm not saying it's, anything it's, but it's uh, really difficult if if the uh Tort fees or the bad guy is alive because of the homeowners uh, homestead act. Uh, sometimes, if you you know do we we do a lot of asset checks. We have investigators that do that stuff for us, and they might be able to locate oil wells out in West Texas. Voila! If you find that, <laughs> voila! <laughs> but it just doesn't happen very often. You know, most of the uh, criminals uh, they're not out committing the kind of crimes that cause the kind of harm that uh, would justify a, a civil case if they have oil wells out in West Texas. <laughs> now, I, I, I have had friends before that have had sexual deviants, you know, just sick people who had a bunch of money, 
who uh, had to pay millions of dollars because of their deviant activities. So there's always a possibility. A lot of folks, uh, you know, have a lot of money, a lot of oil wells out in West Texas who don't act like it. You know, they drive their old 59 Fords and wear their straw hats, and they live alone and, you know, take shape from there. So it's, it's You never know. I had another case, Ross, where uh, it involved products liability case. Um, it was a situation where he was out with a young man hunting deer. They shot a deer. They were walking up to the deer. The deer jumped, and the young man held the rifle, and it shot my client through the arm, and it, you know, it was a horrible injury. The, uh, the young man who got shot had been to four or five of the lawyers, and then he came to my office, and he was talking about an insurance policy that did not apply in situations involving inter-family. Uh, in other words, this, this was his nephew, and even though the nephew was covered by liability, it didn't cover him for negligence against another person who was covered in the policy, which would have included my client. So during the conversation, I uh, heard this story, and I said, do you still have the gun? And he said he did. And I said, well, you know, when you get home, I want you to call me and tell me what model it is and what it is. And sure enough, it was what I thought he might have, and that is a Remington 700 model which also has the name of Kemp Killer. And this is a, was a trigger mechanism that was, for whatever reason, I don't want to say it's a little cheaper, but it might have been a little less expensive to build it out of one piece instead of the usual two pieces. And what would happen, you get a little dirt in there, a little moisture in there, a little oil in there, and a little grime, and pretty soon it sticks. And then all of a sudden, it might discharge. Because your trigger's essentially released, but it's stuck because of all the grime. Exactly. And so you don't know it. That's right. That's right. So that there, there's been a lot of uh, information about that. Now, one thing about hmm. about products liability. I mean, there are two kinds of products liability. One of this is a design defect. And we hear a whole lot about design defects. Design defects as far as tires go, how they're put together airbag litigation, rollovers, seat belts, and a lot of those are design defects. This particular one is a design defect. But there's also what you call a manufacturer's defect. That occurs in tires a lot of times when the vulcanization doesn't occur, right? They put the wrong kind of rubber in the mold. For the people in my field, what's vulcanization? That's where where they, they have two different kinds of rubber, two pieces of rubber that are put together and when the, the heat allows them apart. to actually stick. Yeah. So, so when they de-vulcanize yeah, is yeah. when you got trouble. <laughs> That's, That's when right. you got trouble. So, uh, is that when you're going to have your blowouts all the time? Well, is not all always? the time, but yeah. I mean, um, it, it's typically there is a, a separation of the tread, a separation of the sidewall, and uh, you know the tires blow out. But in guns, what's interesting about gun litigation is that that is the only kind of business where the manufacturers of, of this consumer product is exempt from federal health and safety regulations. Now, I, I think that's really interesting because there's no federal agency that re- can require a gun manufacturer to recall a defective gun. Now, in this case, Remington did recall their Model 700, but guess what? They recalled it back to about 10 or 15 years. And the reason for that was is because there's a statute of repose that keeps repose. What is it for the? Well, count, for it, if if a product is over like 15 years old, you can't take them to court for 
a civil action because the product has been around for that long and supposedly there's a public policy that says if it's an old product then it you know there's a number of reasons it's tort reform okay that's what it is it's tort reform <laughs> you can't sue them so the bottom line is that the only regulation that we have against gun manufacturers uh, is a jury trial and in this case uh, when you look at this there's been reports uh, I think the the uh, truth about guns which is a pro gun blog said that no other industry could survive with a failure rate like this when they're talking about there being a 40% of all new guns contain some type of defect. I mean, I, I find that appalling that 40% of new guns, some type of defect. So it is a, uh, you know, buyer beware kind of situation. But I, that's why you go to somebody like Matt and you can go to him. I, when I got, uh, I got a new uh, pistol in, I took it over to Matt, had him take it apart, look at it. Right, put it back together, make sure everything was working right before I even fired one round. There you go. And so, I mean, you can always uh, go that route. I think it's a good for your safety. If if not, if something happens, and you need to call me or Rick. <laughs> we hope not. Yeah. And of course, Remington says, you know, keep the barrel pointed away from other people. Correct. That, you know, that's that's uh, important. But whenever you're dealing with a product that depends on human factors for safety, then you can get in trouble. Because <laughs> the humans themselves are flawed. That's right. And, and you know, we're not always dealing with adults here. Uh, the Remington 700 actually sent one kid, uh, who I believe was 17 years old at the time that he held up a gun and shot his little brother in the head, sent him to prison. And, you know, it was one of those deals where this was sort of one of the sparks that started this uh, this knowledge about the Remington 700 models. Uh, he spent some time in prison and finally was let out because, you know, he always said, I didn't pull the trigger. I didn't do it. I didn't pull the trigger. I of course, he didn't mean to shoot his little brother. Uh, so you have Wow, that gave me goosebumps, yeah. Yeah, it's awful. It's awful. So it's awful things can happen. There's, uh, besides going to match, you can also go on the Internet and look up things, uh, uh, see if there's maybe something wrong with the gun. And, and for instance, uh, here's the... Uh, Charter Arms Lady 38 Special Revolver. This is one of those revolvers that has a little pink on it. You know, it's a it's a five <laughs> shot revolver. One. It's a little stub nose. They call it a purse gun. And you know what's what's sad is there's there's a a notice a remedy to be taken, and that is you bring it back to where you bought it. I think Academy is is a popular place where they sold it. But when they describe the the hazard of it, it says based on Customer reports and product inspections. Academy believes that some of these charter arms revolvers mm -hmm. may have a manufacturing defect that could result in unsafe conditions while operating the firearm. That gives you a lot of information, doesn't it? No. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, there are a little bit of short guns, and bad things can happen with a little bit of short guns, right? <laughs> we know that. So Academy says, yeah, let's, let's bring it on in. Uh, that doesn't, it's always, it's not always the gun. It sometimes can be the ammunition. Uh, the ammunition, of course, is explosive and supposed to explode. That's what it's designed it's to, to do. do. Yeah. Sometimes Does that make a difference in, in your in your kind of case when you're dealing with a firearm case? Does it make a difference when uh, sometimes people around that maybe got hurt should have known because it, it was a deadly weapon like this? Sure, sure. There's always a... a someone else to blame for something like this uh, in the in the situations that I described earlier um, the the child of course could have been held responsible 
but Remington uh, had the foresight to know that things weren't going to shape up with them real well in court, and we were able to get the case resolved very favorably uh, for the fellow who was shot in the arm, who had come to me with a question about some policy that was uh, worth a whole lot less than ultimately we were able to recover. So, yeah, it's always something having to do with In fact, when you talk about that, like in Texas, you we can't sue sugar and we can't sue tobacco uh, because our legislature has put in the Texas Civil Code of, of uh, practice that it's obvious that those are dangerous. And, you know, I've often wondered if I had a case involving lung cancer that uh, a fellow got hooked on cigarettes while he was a teenager back in the early 60s, whether I could still take that case in Texas. I'm being told by other trial lawyers, no, you can't. But in my belief, you can because it wasn't well known that tobacco was dangerous back in the early 60s. And you had, and you had fraud being, being oh, yeah. perpetrated by several of the major companies in the industry through expert fraud reports. But, but, and so, I mean, there, you, had, you had a reason to believe otherwise. Yeah. But you have great lawyers out there that say, yeah, no, the Texas Code of Civil Practices, nope, can't go after tobacco, even though there was fraud and even though there was this element of someone uh, being addicted to the tobacco before the general knowledge came along. And, you know, it's, it's, it's true. A lot of these folks, uh, they finally do stop smoking. And uh, that, uh, again, is something that's permanently inscribed on a piece of stone at the date that they stop smoking. <laughs> so, so they do smoke beyond the date that they should have stopped. A lot of people are able to stop. So juries, again, can apply that thing we talked about, the personal responsibility to the person who smoked and continue to smoke. But still, the tobacco companies were bad and and really should deserve some of the responsibility and accountability here. But if you've already started and you've been going in it 10 years and the addictive principles of it makes it just hard to just quit. Some That's people right. may not have that willpower. I think to just to completely absolve them of any responsibility when they were intentionally, knowingly putting out the addictive principles, I think that started the whole process. Uh, you're right. It's a good case. All right. Well, I sure appreciate you coming, Ross. Tell us one more time how we can contact you. 105 East Main Street here in Cameron. Big milk cow on the side. Can't miss it. 605-254-605-4140. That's 254-605-4140. Or email me. Email me all day long about the show. We love questions. I tell you, I get several emails a week. Don't be afraid to email me. It's Benton at Watson.legal. That's Benton at Watson.legal. All right. And you can contact me, Richard Dodd, over at Capolino Dodd Krebs. We do a lot of uh, death cases. We do a lot of products cases and asbestos. Now we're working on the uh, earplugs that were made by 3M for servicemen between 2003 and 2015, men and women. Mm-hmm.